Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode will tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Crystal Morrison, who is the founder and CEO at Everize. Everize is a leadership consulting firm that specializes in technical industries. The company works with organization to assess performance, refine strategies, and build up world-class leaders. I'm especially excited to interview Crystal because of her industrial coding and innovation background. Crystal, thanks for coming on the show. You're absolutely welcome. My pleasure. So tell the listeners a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I am a scientist by training. I have a PhD in macromolecular science and engineering from the University of Michigan. I've been an R&D leader for a number of years, Los Alamos National Lab, a small company here in the Pittsburgh area called RJ Lee Group. And uh, then more recently, I led uh, global research for industrial and packaging coatings at PPG. So I have a very strong technical background as well as a tremendous amount of leadership experience in several different environments. Wonderful. Now, with all these technical environments, what sort of things did you worked on that you can tell us? Yeah, absolutely. So while at PPG, we were, of course, heavily involved in industrial coatings and developing you know, multifunctional coatings for a variety of industries from consumer electronics to heavy-duty equipment, really looking at next-generation display coatings as well as next-generation corrosion technology uh, to really enhance the lifetime of the products we were delivering to the market or coding for the market. That was at TPG and other areas I've worked a lot in additive manufacturing, as well as potting materials, polymer foams, and elastomers for structural components and weapon systems. <laughs> so I've, I've worked on a tremendous variety of different types of products, but the underlying theme is always around polymeric materials and enhancing the the products that those materials are incorporated into and really creating disruptive new technology as well based on polymeric materials. Wow. And so you've been involved in this area a while. And what sort of trends were you kind of looking at? Because I, I, I guess you were sort of basing some of your research around trends and opportunities. What, what sort of trends mm-hmm. were kind of popping up in front of you? Yeah. So over the course of my entire career, I think the, the trends that have been consistent is increasing the lifetime of products based on polymeric materials, whether that's an elastomer or foam or even a paint and coating, really extending the lifetime, understanding the fundamentals of the behavior from a, a molecular level, from an interfacial level, and doing all of that to, to extend the lifetime of those materials. More recently, of course, some of the trends that were incredibly important to the work that we were doing is, is certainly around sustainability, mm. but also certainly around 
coatings that, as I mentioned earlier, coatings that can be incorporated into this this uh, idea of a of a, a touch enabled environment. Mm. So for screens and laptops, something very interesting to me as well. Okay, so that's the technology side of things. Obviously, these these organizations follow some sort of innovation process. What were the similarities of and differences from the different places that you work for? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I would say brainstorming, of course, at the uh, heart of everything. So yeah. when posed with a very significant challenge, bringing together people from a variety of different backgrounds that could brainstorm, brainstorm together and come up with a really interesting list of approaches to solve those significant problems. So that's sort of the heart and the commonality across all things, uh, all of the different places I've worked. Obviously, at a national lab, your primary customer is the the government and the needs of both the, the Department of Energy as well as the Department of Defense. And so the grand challenges that you're facing there are, in some cases, a bit different than the grand challenges you're facing as a consumer products manufacturer. But at the same time, there's always that start with brainstorming, coming up with you know, a down selection of different ideas based on short, mid, and, and long-term deliverables, and then crafting a path forward to really deliver on that solution in a reasonable time frame. More recently, in my role at PPG, we had a, a much more robust approach to innovation pipeline. We did follow a stage date process, which mm-hmm. is an incredibly common, of course. And there's always more ideas than there are people, time, and, and money, of course. But was um, a rigorous process. Absolutely. Now, want to clarify for people that don't know what a stage gate process is. Can you explain? Yeah, absolutely. So a stage gate process is a process that a lot of companies follow. I also followed a sort of a similar process, even a national lab, but it's it's based on checkpoints along the way. So in the initial stage is really around the ideation and scoping a project. Into the second stage involved you're moving toward you know identifying more of the requirements of the project. And so as you move through these different stages, again there's checkpoints really understanding the market, understanding the risk, understanding the different types of technical approaches, as well as the market opportunity, the sales opportunity, a variety of different factors. And basically as a way to adequately assess the project from the very beginning and make sure that you have all of the right players involved from a a cross-functional perspective throughout the uh, project. Oh, wow. Now, is this sort of stage uh, gate process sort of consistent in terms of the requirements of, I guess, the the threshold of knowing the market and stuff? Or were they sort of crafted based on different sort of opportunities? That's a great question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question because in, in many ways, when a company or organization sets up a stage gate process, the level of a project value 
is going to to vary greatly. You know, for a, a small, medium sized company, perhaps a project with a fifty million dollar value is very interesting and a well worth the time. But to perhaps a larger company, we're talking about a five hundred million dollar market, perhaps. And so a lot of that does depend on the size of the company and, and the markets they're going after as well. Very interesting. So in this environment, uh, this innovation environment you've been involved in, what sort of challenges did you face in this environment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, to be, very, to be very frank, I mean, we talk a lot about innovation. Innovation is incredibly important. We talk about it a lot, but you know, within our organizations, we don't always do a very good job of creating an environment that actually supports innovation. And so while we talk about innovation, we're still very short-term focused. While we talk about innovation, we're still micromanaging our product, our project. Mm-hmm. While we talk about innovation, we're still not giving our staff the opportunity to actually innovate by all of the restrictions and boundaries that we put in place. So I think for me, that's one of the biggest hurdles I see in innovation is actually the types of environments that we create that either support it or hinder it. So this kind of leads well to how did you get into leadership consulting and why? Absolutely. The biggest reason I made this change is is not because I didn't want to be a scientist. Actually, that's not it at all. I am absolutely a scientist at heart. And what I have observed over the years is that in order to do really good science and engineering and create new products and deliver products to, to market, you have to have an organization and teams that are capable of working together. You have to have a leader that can establish a vision. You have to have a team that can communicate and can communicate not only between technical people, but communicate between others in cross-functional capacities, whether it's your manufacturing folks, your marketing folks, your product management folks. They have to be able to communicate effectively. And so time and time again, I have seen that Excellent science and engineering, amazing innovation happens when you have a really cohesive team with solid leadership in place, not only at the top, but across the organization. And this has been my observation no matter where I've worked. And I think it's a very important observation that we tend to to ignore in some cases because we think if we've got a lot of brilliant people, innovation's just going to happen. Mm. And that's not the case. Interesting. So let's say you're starting to develop some self-awareness around that maybe your team is not functioning as well as it can. What are the steps? What are, what are the yeah, steps? What are the steps to, to become a better organization team-wise and leadership-wise? Absolutely. So when I talk to people first, if you're really struggling with your team and you know there's some areas where you're just not quite performing, I really encourage folks to to look at their own behavior first instead of perhaps pointing the finger at their staff, lack of talent or lack of certain skill sets. 
really look at their own behavior first. I think that's very important. And I do believe that it all comes back to being an empowering leader. And so how you do that, you need to be transparent with your team. You need to be willing to share the bigger picture of what's going on, the vision of the organization and how their work is intimately linked to the strategy and vision of the organization. That at the most basic level is where I would encourage people to start is looking at their own behavior, maybe some of their own weaknesses in leadership. And then starting with being more transparent, communicating the vision and strategy with their team, as well as how they're linked to the overall organization. Now, when you're going down this process, what other sort of tools or things that can help you along your path? I mean, you gave some things that they can do by themselves, Mm -hmm. but what, what resources would you recommend? Absolutely. Well, some of the resources that I benefited from and that I offer myself are individual coaching as well as peer group coaching. I had a number of of executive coaches over the years. They were fantastic. But I really wanted to work with someone that had a technical background that had been in my shoes as an R&D leader. And I also found that my staff over the years, um, folks that have PhDs, technical backgrounds, they really craved the opportunity to talk to someone about leadership and soft skills, but talk to someone who understood where they were coming from. And so I found that group coaching is highly effective. And there's not... There's not a lot of opportunities out there for group coaching for technical folks. You can get all sorts of online webinars, online training on communication, or go to a number of number of classes. But it's really important, I think, in some cases that there's a peer group that you're working with, a peer group of of like-minded folks that understand where you're coming from, and that's very, very beneficial. Now, this peer group, are they kind of, is there kind of a functional consistency? Like, for instance, other peer groups are like all VPs or all presidents or all men. Yeah. How's that work on the technical environment? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a great question. And that's one of my frustrations over the years is that there would be great peer groups for executives. And so what I wanted to do is create peer groups for emerging leaders in technical fields. So folks that um, have been in industry five to 10 years, maybe they're an individual contributor, they're starting to have more responsibility or even leading small teams. And they're finding themselves really lacking some of the foundational knowledge around leadership. And they want to build their network. They want to build relationships with, with peers. And so one group is the peer group for emerging leaders in tech. Hmm. And then the second peer group is mid-career. Again, making sure that there's resources available, not only to your emerging early career leaders, but reinforcing leadership behaviors in mid-career in your pipeline, leadership pipeline in your organization. And so that peer group is more for leaders in technical industries with with more than 10 years of experience. And maybe they don't have a STEM background, perhaps, 
mm-hmm. but perhaps they're leading and managing a lot of technical folks and they want to understand more about how to do that effectively. And they want to also have one-on-one coaching and build their relationships in a peer group network. And so it's really focused on not only building leadership at the top, but building leadership, high-quality, human-centered leadership across an organization. Very good. You talked earlier about foundational knowledge. What sort of foundational knowledge do emerging leaders need to work on? Absolutely. So foundational knowledge, like the basics of communication, the basics of how their body language impacts how people are receiving them, basics around networking and building a stronger network based on relationships, foundational skills around emotional intelligence, how they're handling key moments and challenging situations in the workplace, and also conflict. A lot of emerging leaders are for the very first time experiencing real conflict in the workplace between people. And it's something they've not experienced before and they don't know how to navigate. And so those are what I consider very foundational skills. Very nice. So out of these groups, can you give me some success stories? Like how did they start and where did they end up? Absolutely. So they started because I saw a real need as a leader myself and as someone looking for resources for my own staff, nothing like this really existed. In terms of success stories, you know, I've worked with a number of different individuals, both within my career and and since I've launched EverRise. What I can say is that success stories would include different postdocs that I've worked with on the emerging leader side. And in a number of cases, those are individuals who are technically excellent but they focused on honing their skills in some of these foundational areas. And now they're in more significant leadership roles. And and seeing them grow and thrive is so incredibly rewarding. And to know that I had an impact on helping them along that path is very important. Very nice. So you talked about other people's growth and transformation. What's been your turning point in your career and or in life? That's a great question. So I mentioned other people because as a leader, seeing the folks around you grow is one of the most satisfying things you can possibly imagine. It's it's really, really satisfying and rewarding. For me, there was a couple, I think, turning points in my career. There was a turning point early in my career when I was at Los Alamos, and then a turning point later in my career as well. And early in my career, it was a turning point where I I literally found myself in the parking lot, hiding in my car and and crying because I I was taking on all of these additional responsibilities. I had a PhD. I was well trained, but I knew that there were some foundational skills I was lacking. I didn't know how to engage this team of people that I now had to bring along with me. It was no longer about just my contributions as a scientist. It was about the contributions of the entire team. And that was the first major turning point. (laughs) The realization that the degrees and credentials that I had had to that point 
were not going to get me to the next level, was not going to necessarily help me figure out how to lead people, right? Yeah. So you were going from like doing the work to more of a leadership role. That's that's your first experience. Exactly. Exactly. Was it hard for you to, to give up the doing part? Because the technical people, they love the doing part. And when they take the a more of a leadership role, they might have to give up some of that. How do you deal with that? Yeah. So it was definitely a transition. I myself, I always like to do more and more and more. And so for me, it was initially a transition from being in the lab. But once I had postdocs and technicians and, and other folks on staff that, that were also doing the amount of things that, that were coming out of our lab and the great ideas we were able to pursue and working through with all of them on those ideas, it was still very rewarding. So there was a little bit of time where it took some transition, but working with more folks to, to further what we were working on was a lot of fun, actually. Very nice. And you mentioned another transition point. Yeah. So the second transition point happened within the last several years. And that occurred while I was literally sitting in a boardroom. I served on a number of different executive leadership committees. and. In one particular leadership committee, we had spent several days working on our strategy for the next year and really coming up with a solid attack plan. And on the last day of the meeting, we started making decisions around spending for the year and capital expenditures. And we, we made a decision, we made decisions on spending that effectively negated all of the growth strategies we had spent the previous several days working on. And it was so, it was so disheartening. Mm. It was so disheartening. And I think that was a turning point because I really questioned whether this notion of innovation, I really questioned whether there was a long-term focus. I really questioned whether the work that myself and my teams were we're doing and and the projects that were in the pipeline, I really questioned the value because here we had spent a lot of time looking at our strategy and coming up with a plan, yet on the last day, we effectively negated that entire strategy by some of the financial decisions we made. And so that was that was a turning point for me as well. Very different than the one I talked to you about before, but absolutely a turning point. <laughs> Wow. So what sort of did you learn from that? What did you come out from that? You wanted to do something about it or what what did you learn from that? Well, I think one of the things that I learned from that is the need for being willing to take risk as leaders, the need for leaders when, when they know that something is not right, they're willing to, to speak up. And that's something that I've always, always tried to do myself. But it's really about that sense of congruency. Are you a type of leader that is going to lead not only your team, but your organization in a direction that is congruent with who you are as a human being? Or are you going to make sacrifices in yourself to go in a different direction that maybe that company values more? And so, again, it was a turning point 
but I really learned a lot more about the value and the need for high-performance organization leadership. Very nice. You've been at this for a while in many capacities. You must have developed some some really sort of top-level habits and success. Can you share some of those with us? Okay, so as much as I talk about <laughs> being, being a badass, there are some good habits, but there's probably a lot of bad ones too. So good habits are really having a personal vision myself, understanding what it is that I want to do, what I care about, and the direction I'm going. That's absolutely something that I think that, that everyone needs to do. Other really good habits, I've gotten a lot better about time blocking. Mm -hmm. We all have such crazy schedules. And you sometimes have to be incredibly purposeful about your own time. And we talk about reflecting and we talk about our vision and we talk about all of these things. But we also have to make time in our schedules to be able to think about that. And so I have to do time blocking. I have to block my calendar for two hours and say, I am going to work on my strategy for the next several months, or I'm going to work on making sure I have a really productive or a really effective pipeline in my business. Mm -hmm. So we can get swept up in the busyness, but time blocking and having a personal vision are, are two things that I highly recommend. Very good. You talked about innovation and leadership. What are the companies or the leaders that you see out there doing a fantastic job? Oh, really good question. <laughs> <laughs> really good question. Yes, I you know, I think that some of the companies that that I do admire, I have a lot of colleagues that that work at Covestro and Covestro has really made a conscious change over the past several years, a conscious commitment to innovation and sustainability and creating a work environment and culture that supports those things. And so as opposed to just talking about it, they are really delivering on that. So Confestro is certainly a company that I admire a good bit. There's also some some smaller companies here in Pittsburgh. I'm, I'm located in Pittsburgh, so it's very strong startup culture. We have a lot of companies that are really doing things different. And some of the companies that come to mind are folks like Argo AI, uh, for example. They were a spin out of Carnegie Mellon and have wrote a lot over the past year or so about their commitment to, to culture. And that to me is very important that a company that is growing very, very quickly is committed to doing it in the right way and really crafting a culture that supports both leadership, innovation, and high-quality work. Very nice. What about great books on innovation and leadership? Ah, great books. I have a, a lot of people talk about Blue Ocean Strategy. Uh-huh, yeah. I had an opportunity to meet Alan Gannett earlier in the year. He's the author of the Creative Curve. Uh -huh. Very, very interesting, good book there that I like. A book that's not necessarily about innovation and leadership, but it's about 
the combination of not only strategy and goals, but execution. And that book is The Four Disciplines of Execution. Uh-huh. It's a book that I love because it, it really talks about not only creating goals, but understanding what the lag and lead measures are and keeping yourself accountable. That's the key, keeping yourself accountable. And I think no matter what it is we do, innovation included, keeping ourselves accountable toward our goals and even redefining our direction if we need to is very important. Very nice. Who have been your mentors over the years? So my mentors over the years, a lot of different people. Going back to my childhood, had an amazing teacher. Her name was Barbara Sparks, now Barbara Nevin, that I absolutely admire and adore. Other teachers that I had, even in high school, excellent teachers and mentors. Early on in my career, I worked in a great group at Los Alamos that was very supportive. My postdoc advisor, Barbara Smith and, and Tom Robinson were great. I also had a mentor at Los Alamos. Her name is Mary Nye. Worked with her in a pilot program for leaders. And some of the things that we talked about early on have absolutely stuck with me. More recently, great role models. One of the people that I look up to a great deal is my family, my grandmother in particular, who's now passed. But and, you know, these people who came from very, very simple backgrounds, but they instilled in me the foundation of, of people and caring about people first. And I think that if you're going to have role models, that that's, that's important, that they, they're really showing you how to not only care about people, but demonstrating it themselves. Very nice. Is there anything that I should have asked you but didn't? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. I think that questions around, you know, people are always interested in, did you always know that this is something that you wanted to do? Or did you just figure it out in the last couple of years? And having my own business and starting my own company focused on leadership is something I never dreamed of doing. Never, ever crossed my mind. When I was early on in my career, you know, I very much had this notion that I wanted to be a global research leader or a CTO, that I wanted to shape the strategy of an organization and develop really awesome stuff. And I did that. I did that. But I mentioned early on in this conversation that, that I'm a scientist at heart. Yes. Absolutely a scientist at heart. And, and so for me, it's almost painful to think about <laughs> all of these brilliant ideas and products and, and technology and not being able to move forward because we as technical folks don't really want to lead or we think it's soft skills and it's a waste of time. To me, that's painful. <laughs> it's painful to think about. And, and so it occurred to me that I can still be very, very true to my scientist soul by helping other people become stronger leaders so that we can 
we can deliver on this amazing science and technology. I mean, to me, that is, that's what gives me energy. And it all comes back to being a scientist at heart and knowing that really good work doesn't happen without people and figuring out how to navigate people and coach and encourage people, empower people is where it's at. So no, I I had no idea I was going to start my own company. It was never part of my journey, but ultimately it became a very important part of my journey because again, at my heart, I'm a scientist and I, and I see what I'm doing now as having a huge impact on people, not only within one organization, but within a lot of organizations. Wow. What you said there certainly sort of, I can identify with because yeah. I definitely love, love seeing the best ideas win. Yeah. I hate yeah. it when the idea that's inferior gets out there just so some yeah. technicality and makes it to the marketplace. And, you know, because I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of great ideas that die at the, the lab level for, for many different reasons. And anything yeah. that, or anyone that sort of pushes that along is, uh, is yeah. I feel, doing fantastic work. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. That. You're welcome. You're welcome. So how do people get a hold of you? Absolutely. So my website is everrisellc.com and that's com, And I am more than happy <laughs> to give my personal email out on this podcast. Folks can email me at cmorrison at com. I am absolutely passionate about people. If someone reaches out to me and wants to connect and, and wants to figure out ways to become a stronger leader themselves, um, or they really want to um, help build stronger leadership in the organization, please let me know something that's incredibly important. And we absolutely cannot innovate um, and grow and create sustainable businesses unless we have foundations on leadership. Well, thank you so much, Crystal. Now, well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to Specified. And I want to thank the listeners that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.